Welcome to the Cross Church Podcast. This message was presented on July 7th. Pastor Allen kicked off our summer series, Summer of Psalms, Inside the Heart of David. Join us as we examine Psalm 22. And so this morning, on this long weekend, we're beginning a brand new series called Psalms of the Summer. And uh, we're not looking at all the Psalms because there's 150 of them. But what we will do is we'll look at 10, and it begins today, and it ends on September the 1st. The Psalms that we're going to look at are the Psalms that were specifically written by King David. And King David wrote uh, approximately 75 of the 150 Psalms. So what we're doing is we want to get to know who King David is. And uh, King David, in case you don't know, by the way, this is uh, an exact likeness of David. Not really. Um, it was a painting done by Gerard van Honthorst, the famous Dutch painter. But this is his rendition of, of David. And um, I'm just going to leave that up there just so that you kind of get a feel for David. Uh, David, King David, uh, is considered Israel's greatest king. King David, when he reigned uh, in Israel, uh, many Jewish people would say that was Israel's golden age. It was the best years ever. And uh, both spiritually and culturally, uh, all of Israel was united as one. And this man, David, called a man after God's own heart, was the one that led Israel. Now, it's interesting that David is called a man after God's own heart, because if you know your Old Testament, you know that King David, although he's a wonderful worshiper, he wrote 75 Psalms, a godly, godly man, he was also a sinner like you and me. And some of you know that, that David committed adultery with Bathsheba and also was instrumental in the death of her husband so as to cover his sin. And yet God still called him a man after his own heart. And so it's, it's, uh, it's something that we all need to understand because every one of us here today is a sinner in need of God's grace. Would you say amen to that? Well, there's only three people who are sinners here today in need of God's grace. Let me try that one more time. Every one of us is a sinner today in need of God's grace. Amen. Well, that's good. That's very good. So I'm glad that we're all on the same page. So what we're going to do is we're going to actually look into David's heart, and we're going to get to know why he was a man after God's own heart. And hopefully your heart will be encouraged and challenged. Um, let me just say this. Uh, Taryn suggested that that what we do this summer is we challenge the whole congregation to read through the Psalms through the summer months. Now, one of the things that I learned from Billy Graham, he called me up one day and said, hey, Alan. No, he didn't do that. Uh, Billy Graham suggests to, to Christian leaders especially that they learn to know the Psalms by reading five, five Psalms every day. And if you read five Psalms every day and read one chapter of the Proverbs every day, then you can go through Psalms and Proverbs every month. So this is something I've tried to do for years, and I can tell you it's had a, a, a tremendous benefit for me spiritually, but it's, uh, it's, it's, it's enabled me to understand God's great plan, as we saw in the, in the video clip we just, uh, we just showed you. Now, uh, so what we want to do is we want to try to encourage everybody to read through the Psalms. I'm not saying that you should necessarily read through five Psalms every day, although I would challenge you to do that. But try to get through the, all the Psalms through the summer months. In the 10 weeks that we're doing this, 
uh, try to read through the Psalms, and I think that your heart will be greatly encouraged, greatly challenged, and, and even transformed. So that's the challenge for you, and you'll probably hear more about that in the days to come. Let me just remind everybody that Psalms means praises. And so when we look at the book of Psalms, we, we see that it's a hymn book for the Jewish people to help them to worship God the way God wants them to worship him. How many know that we can't worship God any old way we want? We have to worship God according to what he subscribes or prescribes for us. And so uh, what you need to know about the Psalms it is actually, the, the word psalm is a noun that comes from the verb, which means to pluck or to twang strings. And so we, we understand that the psalms were often sung and uh, accompanied by a harp or, or uh, a lyre or whatever, whatever stringed instruments they might have had. And um, understand this, that the psalms have uh, retained their original purpose from the beginning, and, and that is to produce the proper praise and worship of God. So we want to praise and worship God in the way that he wants to be praised and worshiped. And can I just remind everybody, when it comes to the worship of God, worship, ready for this, always begins with obedience. So we can get together and we can wave our hands around and we can get into the music, we can clap, we can sing the songs and even be excited about it, we can sing wholeheartedly. But I'm going to tell you that if it doesn't come from a life of obedience, then it's empty. And this is what the Psalms shows us. The Psalms show us how to live and then how to worship out of a life of obedience. But we'll talk about more of that through the course of the summer months. So... The book of, of Psalms is really is a uh, is really practical theology. It, t- it tells us how to live, not just what to understand, but tells us what to do. How many understand that that true Christianity is not just what we believe, but it's what we do? How many understand that? In fact, in Hebrews it says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. And real faith is believing God and doing what he says. That's what faith is. Believe God and do what he says. And so this is what, this is what Psalms is all about. It's a practical theology that tells us what to believe and it tells us what to do. Really critical that you understand that. The next thing I need to point out to you is that the backdrop for the Psalms really is twofold. First of all, it's the acts of God in creation and in history. And then secondly, it's the history of Israel itself and how God reveals himself as the God who is able to do exceedingly and abundantly above what anybody could ever ask or think. So here's, here's what I want to say to you today before we go any further. If you've come here today and you've got problems, and I know everybody, most people have problems of, of one sort or another. If you're struggling with temptation, some kind of sin that is plaguing your heart, Uh, You're struggling maybe in your marriage or with your family. You're struggling with your finances. Whatever it is that you're struggling with, understand this, that the Word of God is sufficient to teach you and to guide you through this life so that you live in a way that pleases God and secondly, in a way that brings you what we would call success, success in life. Now, I'm not talking about the kind of success that's, it says, look how rich I am by my, by my system, and you can become rich like me. I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is having a successful life based on what the Scripture declares as successful. And by the way, what is that? What does a successful life look like? Well, 
If life is all about relationships, which is what we teach at Cross Church, your relationship with God and your relationship with one another, with your wife, with your kids, with your friends, with your boss, your workmates, if life is all about relationships, then we know what a successful life looks like. A successful life is, is, is one that gets along with everybody. And even when there is tension, even when there's stress, even when, when people don't get along, the life that's successful says, I'm going to do what God says. I'm not going to do what I want. I'm going to do what the Bible says and, and therefore be successful. And I'm going to tell you right now, folks, the Word of God is powerful. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It has the power and the ability to show you how to live and how to be a parent, how to be a father, how to be a mother, how to be a good boss, how to be a great employee, how to be a great child, a great son, a great daughter. The scriptures are there to tell you how to get life right. And I can tell you right now that many of us here today are in trouble because we haven't done what the scriptures say. So what I want to read, do now is I want to read to you Psalm 119. And you're going to see, this is a psalm written by David. Through the course of the summer, there's different themes that we're going to look at to help us in our walk with God. And so Psalm 19 deals with, with the Word of God, with the, with the power of the Scripture to help us in this life. So let me read this to you. It says, The heavens proclaim the glory of God. In other words, the heavens declare how great God is. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day, they continue to speak. Night after night, they make him known. They speak without a sound or word. Their voice is never heard, yet their message has gone throughout the earth, and their words to all the world. God has made a home in the heavens for the sun. It bursts forth like a radiant bridegroom after his wedding. It rejoices like a great athlete eager to run the race. The sun rises at one end of the heavens and follows its course to the other end. Nothing can hide from its heat. Those first six verses is, is God revealed in his world. In fact, the Apostle Paul in, in the book of Romans says that nobody is going to be without excuse on the day of judgment. Because God has revealed himself through his creation, through what he's made. So God reveals himself through his world. Now, the next 7 to 11 verses, we discover that God reveals himself through his word. So the first six verses, God reveals himself through the world. And then the next verses, God reveals himself through his word. What is his word, by the way? It's the word of God the Bible, the Scripture. So if you want to know God, then you have to read the Word of God. So listen to this, verse, starting at verse 7. The instructions of the Lord are perfect, reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The commandments of the Lord are right, bringing joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are clear, giving insight for living. The commands of the Lord are clear, giving insight for living. The reverence for the Lord is pure, lasting forever. The laws of the Lord are true. Each one is fair. They are more desirable than gold, even the finest gold. They are sweeter than honey, even honey dripping from the comb. They are a warning to your servant, a great reward for those who obey them. 
How can I know all the sins lurking in my heart? Cleanse me from these hidden faults. Keep your servant from deliberate sins. Don't let them control me. Then I will be free of guilt and innocent of great sin. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Well, in just a few moments, we're going to actually look at verses eleven to or verses seven to eleven. Before we do that, there's a few things that I need to point out to you. First of all, I want you to understand something. What David is doing here is he's affirming the importance of Scripture, the power of Scripture. And he's saying that you need the Word of God in order to bring you the success that you're looking for in your life. I mean, nobody wants to go through life as a loser. Nobody wants to go through life as a failure. Nobody wants to come to the end of their life and say, man, I just messed the whole thing up. How many know today that there's no dress rehearsal for this life? This is it. You get one life, and then it's over. The decisions you make today are going to be with you for the rest of your life. And this is what David is saying. Therefore, you need the Word of God to instruct you and to guide you. And I tell you, you know, we live in really, uh, really difficult times because we're living in a day and age when people are second-guessing the Scripture. In fact, what we're seeing is that there are many churches, uh, some mainline denominations, that do not believe in the inerrancy and the infallibility of Scripture. There's a lot of churches today that would say, well, we can interpret it the way we want to interpret it. But I'm saying to you today, we do not have that privilege or that right to mess with the Word of God or to second-guess God. What we have to do, if we're going to get this life right, is we have to do what the Bible says. And everybody said? Amen. Yeah. We have to do whatever it says, even the hard bits. How many know that there are some hard and difficult parts in the Scripture? Things that we would like to say, well, I didn't really mean that, or that's really not for today, or, you know, we've got to, you know, we, we'll, we're just going to just revamp the Scripture and, and, and get it caught up with, with the year 2019, right? I'm going to tell you, every single denomination, every single church that has taken that route today is either dying or is dead. Do you know that today there are 9,000 churches uh, I think within 10 years, 9,000 churches that will have completely died, closed the doors, it's over. The Anglican church is losing 13,000 members a year. United Church, I think they're, they're closing a church every week, and it's been like doing that, they've been doing that for years. We're seeing it everywhere. What's going on? What keeps a church vibrant and alive? What attracts people? What drives them away? I'll tell you, folks, it hinges on the Scripture and what people do with the Word of God. So if you, if you do not hold to the Scripture, if you're not following the Word of God, if you're not doing what the Word of God tells you to do, and if it's not being preached in your church, then the church is going to face extinction. Every church that holds to the Word of God and is faithful to its teaching is vibrant, is growing, and you're going to see people who are truly on fire for God. Cross Church, as long as I'm pastoring this church, I'm holding to the Scripture, plain and simple. I'm not budging from that. I'm not budging from that. 
So if you want a church that's watering things down and trying to keep up with the times, you've come to the wrong place. But if you want to know what the true word of God is, you've come to the right place. Because as long as God gives me ability and gives me breath and gives me strength, I will proclaim the true word of God, even the difficult bits. Even the difficult bits. So David, it's a high view of Scripture. And wherever there's a high view of of Scripture, there is growth, there is development, there is success in the lives of those who hold to those truths. Do you know that throughout the the Jewish history, from, uh, from, from the beginning to modern times, the Jews never questioned the inerrancy of Scripture? And by the way, in case you're wondering what inherent means, inerrant means, it means there's no errors. The word infallible means there can be no errors. The Jews never questioned their, their Old Testament. And for many, many centuries, Christians didn't question the New Testament until the, until the 18th century. In the 18th century, there was a rise uh, uh, or shall I say, there is um, a movement. Let's call it that, a movement. It was called the ascendancy of human reason. It was called the century of enlightenment. And there we see the German skeptics and the European critics who began to attack the Bible. They tried to do what, what we would call demythologizing the Scripture. So, so whenever you read of any sort of miracles in the Bible, these German uh, skeptics, the European critics, what they wanted to do is they wanted to show how well we can, we can, we can disprove these miracles. Let's try to take the miracles out. It wasn't the Red Sea. It was a sea of reeds. How many have heard that? In the Sea of Reeds, it means it, wasn't, it wouldn't have been that hard for the children of Israel to go through it. But the Bible says clearly that they went through on dry ground. So even if it was a Sea of Reeds, uh, it still has to be dry, dry ground. And here's the other problem. Is that how on earth did Pharaoh's army drown in a Sea of Reeds with their horses and their chariots? The Word of God says that Pharaoh's army was drowned in the Red Sea. But you see, these demythologizers are trying to try to re- reinterpret and try to, uh, to change the meaning of Scripture in order to fit and be uh, palatable to us. I'm going to tell you right now, the, the, the linchpin, the cornerstone of the Christian faith is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus died and he came back from the dead. So our whole faith hinges on a miracle. Take away the miracle, and we don't have a Christian faith anymore. And you've heard me talk about this before. I don't have time to get into the proofs of the resurrection, but we know that Jesus rose from the dead, and there are many proofs to prove that. Come come next Easter, and you'll hear all about it. But in the meantime, understand this, is that we as Christians, we believe in the miracle power of our God. We believe that God is still in the business of doing miracles and making uh, our lives into the creation that he wants us to be. Hey, did you know that when you became a Christian, the Bible declares that you are a new creation? I'm going to tell you that for me, that's the greatest miracle of all, that God could take Alan Duncalf and transform him and make him into a brand new person, a brand new creation. And for many of you today, you know that's exactly what's happened in your life. You are a brand new creation. 
So in the 18th century then, we see this attack on the Scripture. Satan's smart. He, we, the Bible says we're not ignorant of Satan's schemes. We know the way he works. He wants, if he can destroy the Scripture, if he can make us doubt the Word of God, well, then he can destroy our faith. And that's exactly what's happened to so many churches. They're crumbling. They're falling apart because their people no longer believe the Word of God as it, is, as it has been given to us. In answer to this uh, 18th century enlightenment, in the year 1738, there was a brand new movement that, that came out of this, uh, uh, this, this ethos of doubt, this ethos of attacking Scripture, and we call it the evangelical movement. Some of you, how many have heard of the term evangelical? You know what I'm talking about? Now, I'm going to tell you, the media hates evangelicals. You're going to hear that all the time. People who are, who are godless uh, and don't believe in God, they see evangelicals as the enemy. Now, why is that? Well, they'll say because evangelicals are bigots. How many have heard that? Evangelicals are intolerant, and, and, and the list of, of nasty uh, names goes on and on. Now, the reason they're calling us intolerant and the reason they're calling us bigots is because evangelicals are, are faithful to the Word of God. And so as the culture changes, as the culture rejects God, as the culture rejects the Word of God, what happens, folks, is that you've got a whole, a whole society, a whole culture that now is opposed to God, to His Word, and to evangelicals. But there are some people who say, well, I don't want to give up my faith, but I want to step with the time. So what do they do? They begin to compromise. They begin to, to, to pick out pieces of the Scripture they don't like anymore. Ah, this doesn't fit my, my worldview, and this doesn't fit my worldview. You see what's going on here. People, rather than having their minds and their hearts shaped by Scripture, they're shaping the Scripture according to their own belief system. And I'm going to tell you right now, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. It begins to fall apart because the question then is this, what parts are truth and which parts are not truth? The whole thing collapses. So either God's word is true, 100% true, 100% inerrant, 100% infallible, or it's not. And this is the thing that every one of us in this room has got to face. It's something that all of our children have to face. And if you are not 100% certain today that God's word is inerrant and infallible and trustworthy to give us guidance and wisdom in this life, then you're going to have big problems on your hands because now you're going to try to readjust the faith, readjust Christianity, readjust the Bible to make it fit your life. And the, and the problem, of course, is this is that now the Bible is not changing you. You're changing the Bible. And if you're changing the Bible, it's having zero effect on you. And this is what David understood. So in just a moment, we're going to look at the ways that the Scriptures transform us. But this is what the evangelical movement was all about. It was, a, it was an answer to the German skeptics and the Enlightenment that actually was, had a very low view of Scripture. In fact, for so many, they rejected the Word of God. So let's just take a look at this for a moment. What is an evangelical? 
Before I answer that question, let me tell you this, that in the world today, uh, of all the Christians in the world, there are, uh, as of 2016, 619 million people who identify as evangelical. An evangelical is somebody who is not a Roman Catholic, and you've heard me talk about that in the past, and I'll probably describe I'll probably be discussing it over and over again in the years to come, uh, in the months to come. But in the meantime, understand this. This is what, these are the four things that evangelicals focus on. And remember, evangelical movement is, was a movement that, that arose as a protest against human reason uh, and the, the enlightenment. So what do we believe? First of all, we believe, as evangelicals, we believe that the atonement, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and the atonement is critical to our faith. In other words, you cannot be a Christian if you have not come to that place where you say, Jesus has died for my, my sins and I, by faith, have embraced Jesus and believe that Jesus died for me. That's what you have to believe. You believe that Jesus died for your sins. And so that'd be the question I'd ask you today. Do you know that Jesus Christ has died for your sins? And if you, if you are not sure of that, well, then you would not be converted yet. You need to understand that Jesus died for your sins, and you need to embrace that and say, you know what? I am a sinner, and I need God's forgiveness. I need God's grace. I need his mercy. I need Jesus to wash away my sins. So this is, this is where the whole evangelical belief system begins. We understand that my sins needed atonement. We need, I needed Jesus to die for me because I, on my own, am a sinful person. Anybody with me on this or am I all alone? <laughs> the next thing that needs to happen is I need to be converted. How am I converted? I need, I need to put my faith in Christ. Now, this past week, we had a staff retreat, and one of the things that came up in our staff retreat is this whole question of conversion, because here's what we know. We know that many people who go to church, and a number who go to our church, are not yet converted. They've, they, they, there's people throughout North America. Uh, in fact, I've talked to pastors about this. This is something we are all talking about now, and we're very concerned about it. The numbers of people who go to church but are not converted. People who go to church, they'll sing the songs. They'll even put money in the offering plate. They're even involved in church. In fact, they'll even invite people to church, but they're not converted yet. They're not born again. Evangelicals believe that you need to be converted according to John chapter 3, where Jesus himself says, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you must be, nobody knows, you must be born again. Say it with me, born again, born again, or converted, whatever term you want to use. You need to be converted. You need to put your faith in Jesus, and you need to become a brand new person. Listen, this is really just a real quick way to understand whether a person's converted or not. A person who's converted will talk about their old self, the old self that was, was full of sin and needed to die. And then they'll talk about their new self, the converted self. I'm a new, brand new creation. The old Alan is dead. There's a brand new Alan standing before you, converted, born again by the power of God's Spirit. Hallelujah. What is the symbol of this? 
Jesus, Jesus Christ made it clear to us that we need to be baptized. Jesus set an example for us that we should follow in his steps. And you remember, that if you've been baptized, you know how it works. We, we dunk you under, right? Make sure every single hair in your head, arm, leg, body is wet. <laughs> we put you right under the word baptized. Baptizo means to immerse. And then we pull you up again. What is that symbolizing? It symbolizes the old you dead and buried, and then the brand new you comes up out of the water. I'm a brand new creation. So we as evangelicals believe that you need to be converted. It's not enough to go through your catechism. It doesn't matter if you're... I mean, listen, baptism, becoming a member of the church, does not save you. That's not how you know you're converted. You're converted because there's something spiritual that's happened in your heart. You are born again. You know the Spirit of God has come to dwell within you. And how do we know all this? There's only one way that you can know this. And it's not through a pope, and it's not through a pastor. It's through the word of God. The third thing that we know about evangelicals is that we are activists. We, we get out there, and we transform our culture through, uh, through many, many means. First of all, through evangelism. We, wanna, we, we understand the importance of getting out there and telling people about Jesus. We want people to know about Christ because we know that when a person puts their faith in Jesus Christ, their life changes. Their family changes. Everything changes when people are converted. And so we, are, we, are, we have actively involved in evangelism. We're actively involved in building schools. I told you about that this morning in Moravia, the three new schoolrooms, because we understand that's the call of God on our lives. What else? We, we go out there, we establish schools and clinics and, and, uh, and provide uh, medical help and dentistry and, and so on and so forth. But the fourth thing that's really critical is an evangelical understands the Word of God as being the Word of God. It's not just one of the holy, a collection of holy scriptures that, is, that can be lumped in together with all the other so-called scriptures out there. We believe that the Word of God is God's revelation to us. We know the very heart, the very mind of God through His Word. We believe it's inerrant. It has no errors. We believe it's infallible. It cannot, it cannot have errors. And by the way, you've heard this all the time. People say, oh, there's all kinds of mistakes in the Bible. You've all heard that. Baloney. It's not there. You, you, next time someone says that to you, you say, okay, well, show me. Somebody told me. I thought I heard. I, I read it on. I saw the document. YouTube. Uh, I read a book. Say, show me. Show me where the errors are. Here's what you're going to find. And by the way, this is one of the reasons why my faith is so strong. It's because after, after almost 40 years of studying the Scripture, the thing that I see from Genesis to Revelation is how, how very tight the Scripture is. It has one message. Humanity has fallen, and God has made a way for us to come back into the Garden of Eden. He's given us a way. He's shown us a way, and it's through Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This, my friends, is what the Scripture teaches us. And this is what the Bible says from Genesis to Revelation. I'm going to tell you, it's so tight. The theology is so correct. It is, it, it, it's, it's, it's miraculous. 
It is absolutely miraculous. I haven't got time to get into that today, but understand this today. The Word of God is absolutely life-changing for anybody who will embrace it. I want you to see this definition of biblical infallibility. Biblical infallibility is the belief that what the Bible says regarding matters of faith and Christian practice is holy, completely, absolutely, utterly useful and true. It is the belief that the Bible is completely trustworthy as a guide to salvation and the life of faith and will not fail to accomplish its purpose. So, folks, if you want to know what happens when you die, what happens when you die? I can tell you, the Word of God can tell you what happens and can tell you definitively how you can be sure you're going to heaven. I hear this all the time. People talk about it all the time. Uh, they have no idea what the Scripture says. They have no, no basis of, for which to, to make their proclamation. But they said, Mom's gone to heaven, Dad's gone to heaven, my, whatever. And, and, and it's based on just, well, my dad was a good person, so therefore he must be there. Listen, folks, you, have to, you ought to be sure of what you're talking about. If you want to know for sure that you're getting to heaven, then you need to know what the Bible says because it's going, to, it's going to teach you what you need to know in order to make it to heaven. And that's, that's what we're talking about here. We talk about biblical infallibility, it, that the Bible is completely useful and true. It guides us in our faith. It helps us so that we know what is true and what is not true. So what do we do with this information? Well, let me just show you again this scripture really quickly. And, and, and let's look at that. The instructions of the Lord are perfect, reviving the soul. By the way, those words that are underlined, those are just other, these are just synonyms for the word of God, for the Bible. God's instruction book. This is God's instruction book. This is God's book of decrees. The Bible is the instruction book. It's the decrees. And here's what David says here. He says, the instructions of the Lord are useful for reviving the soul. That word revive in Hebrew is uh, mishibeth. And in your King James Bible, if you have one, it will read, uh, is perfect for reviving or converting the soul. Hey, listen, all of us are plagued by guilt. All of us are plagued by shame, by selfishness, by sin. But the good news is this. When you read the Scripture, what, what David is saying here, it's pu you're pushing the reset button. How many would like to push the reset button? This is a horrible week. Or you let God down, you let your wife down, you let your kids down, you let your boss down. Push the reset button. How do you do it? By picking up the Scripture, reading it, and allowing it to nourish your spirit. And to show you what you need to confess and to show you what you need to make right. And God does a work by his spirit. David says the decrees of the Lord are trustworthy, trustworthy, making you wise. Hey, you know, some of the smartest people I've ever known have also been the dumbest people I've ever known. They make bad decisions. And really, at the end of the day, they're, they're, many are, are absolutely useless. Solomon understanding his need of wisdom, uh, when given the opportunity, he says to God, God, uh, rather than making me rich or making me the, wise, or the, the greatest king that ever lived, the most powerful king, God, what I really need is I need an understanding mind to govern your people. 
able to discern between good and evil. And because of that, God made Solomon the wisest man that ever lived. And, and God used Solomon to write a portion of our present-day Bible. But what's, what's Solomon saying? He's saying having all the wealth in the world, all the power in the world, all the fame in the world is not going to solve your problems. What you need is the wisdom of God. If the wisest man who ever lived is saying that, then folks, who are we to disagree? And that's the power of the Word of God. David understood this. And so David is, is constantly in the Word of God because he needs it to make him wise. And then we read on, on in verse 8, the commandments, there's another word for the Word of God. The commandments of the Lord are right, bringing joy to the heart. Hey, I... Uh, I was just looking for a little anecdote this morning, and I came across uh, these words written by uh, Dr. Watkins from Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And here's what he says. He says, religion for many of us was many things, but not often joyful. It was boring, it was scary, it was shaming, it filled us with fear or hatred, or self-loathing, or prejudice, or legalism that led us to believe that religion was little more than a list of do's and don'ts. Well, frankly, I can't imagine what kind of a church this man must have gone to. I mean, really? Filling us with fear, or hatred, or self-loathing? You see, this is what people think about evangelicals because of our commitment to the Word of God. Because we disagree with why, the way they may be living or the way that they might believe or what they think or say, they automatically will brand us as, as being uh, people full of hate or phobias. He says, he says, but joy, that isn't what we traditionally associate with religion, and that's too bad. You see, joy is named specifically dozens of times in scriptures. And the very, the very spirit of Scripture is that we be full of joy. He says, life isn't always fun. It isn't always easy, but it can be joyful. That is at least the affirmation of our sacred texts. Well, I'm going to tell you, this man has completely, utterly and completely misread the Word of God. Because I can tell you right now that the, that the very core of our faith is not joy. The core of our faith is obedience to God. And when we are obedient to God, guess what happens? We become joyful. Joyful. Being joyful and happiness and, 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 and this euphoria is the fruit of an obedient life. Show me somebody who's living a disobedient life. I'm going to show you somebody who is blue, who is depressed, who is feeling worthless, who... who who tries to talk to themselves in the mirror and, and, and tries to tell themselves, I'm a wonderful person, I'm a good person, I'm a happy person, and, and this kind of nonsense. I'm going to tell you the thing that's going to make you joyful in this life is by beginning to, to live by the commandments of the Lord because they're right, bringing joy to the heart. Dr. Watkins, are you kidding me? Hey, listen. The power of the Word of God is to show us how to live, how to live obediently in order to do what God wants us to do. And then he goes on to say, the commands of the Lord are clear, giving insight for living. 
hey, you know what most of us do in order to get insight is we will we'll listen to a, a preacher, we'll listen to podcasts, we'll listen to YouTube clips, we'll go to the bookstore to buy, to buy how-to books, self-help books. We'll talk to our friends, we'll talk to our family, we'll do everything but turn to the Word of God. If you want insight for living, if you want to be making decisions that are going to be best for you, but not just for you, for your spouse, for your children, for your friends, for, our, for your work environment, for your career, the thing that you need to do is you need to start living according to the commands of the Lord. If you don't read the Word of God, how will you know? So you start reading the Word of God, you start following His commands, and by the way, my friends, you are going to be, become the, the best wife, the best husband, the best child, the best employee, the best employer. You are going to know how to manage your money like nobody else can manage it. Why? Because you have been given insight from God's Word. I'm going to tell you, you need to read your Bible. Nicholas, my son, after the first service, he came to back to my office and said, Dad, I am so pumped and so excited about this. I'm going to be reading through all the Psalms the way you did it. So how is that? Five Psalms a day and one chapter of Proverbs every day. He said, that's what I want to do. I want to try this. I want to see what happens. I would challenge you to do the same thing. Folks, you will begin to have insight that will absolutely make your friends wonder, what on earth happened to you? Were you, were you struck by lightning? How did you get so smart? How did you get so, how did you get so insightful and so wise? That's the power of the word of God. And that's exactly what's, what David is saying. And then David says this. He says, the laws of the Lord are true. Each one is fair. Remember I was talking to you about worldview? Just a, uh, maybe a month ago, we talked about having a biblical worldview. Hey, listen, here's what you need to know. If you want to know the truth, how many have heard people say, well, this is your truth and this is my truth? I mean, have you heard that? You know, if anybody, if you've got a brain in your head, you know that you can't have a truth that, that is against my truth, that's in opposition to my truth, because one of us is not going to be right. Logic, sheer logic tells you that. So what, what David is saying, go to the law of God, go to the word of God and find out what the truth is. Because at the end of the day, I don't really care what your truth is. And at the end of the day, you don't really care about mine. What we want to know is we want to know what the truth is. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You want to know the truth and you need to know the word of God. The laws of God. And by the way, in case you don't know, Jesus is actually, one of his titles is the word of God. Because why? Because Jesus Christ reveals God to us. And that's why we read not just the Old Testament, we read the New Testament to find out the very heart and mind of God. We discover the laws of the Lord are true, and each one is fair. I'm going to tell you, the world will tell evangelicals are unfair, they're bigots, but I'm going to tell you that's not the truth at all. God determines what is true. God determines what is fair, what is just. Paul, or David goes on to say this, that the, the law of God, the commands of God are more desirable than gold, even the finest gold. They're sweeter than honey, even honey dripping from the comb. Are you getting this? You need to study the word of God. You need to get into the scripture. You need to be reading it every day. You say, Pastor Allen, I don't know where to begin. Begin in Matthew. Start reading through the, through the Gospels that, that beautifully tell you who Jesus is. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then start going through, through the epistles. And after you've done that, start in Genesis. But start reading the Scriptures, because I'm going to tell you right now, it's going to be the most important thing in your life. 
You know, we, the, the irony of all this is that we live in a day and an age when people have got more Bibles than anybody in the history of, of, of humanity. Some of you have got, I've got an RSV, an NASB, I've got an NLT, I've got a KJV, I've got a Living Bible, I've got the Message, and we've got all these versions of the Scripture. I've got a concordance, I've got a Bible dictionary, I've got commentaries, I've got, I've got Hebrew lexicon, I've got the Greek. I've got, we've got all of this, and yet we are more illiterate biblically today than we've ever been. And the irony is we've got all these helps and all these Bibles, and yet we still don't. I've got the Bible app. And still, we're, we're no further ahead spiritually. Folks, it's time for us to lay hold of the Scripture, start memorizing it, start reading it, start knowing it, because I'm going to tell you it's the most important thing that you will ever have in your life because it's going to transform your life. Hey, do you know what? Google, I Googled this this morning. How many books have pub been published in the world? Of course, we all know that Google knows everything, including all your business, and uh, Google says that there's about 130 million books published in the world. Now, here's the interesting thing. Of the 130 million books published in all the world, guess which one is the bestseller? The Word of God, the Bible. Isn't that interesting? We understand today, folks, the greatest book that you are ever going to lay hold of is more desirable than gold. And it's sweeter than honey. David's thinking, what's, what's, what's the most desirable thing of his time? It's gold and honey. And he's saying that the scripture is even greater, even better. Can I ask you today, what's the most important thing in your life? And if, if you answer the Bible, then, then you better be reading it every day. You, you better make, you, it better be number one in your life because I can tell you this, you may think that you can fool me or fool others, but you can't fool your kids and you sure can't fool God. It's the most important thing in your life. Let me just share one more verse with you. Psalm 19.11, then we'll go. David says, the word of God, the scriptures are a warning to your servant. Paul's saying that, he's, he's talking, or not Paul, David is talking about himself. They are a warning to your servant and a great reward for those who obey them. Would you stand with me, please? Hey, listen, if you want your life and your, if, if you want to have a happy, happy life and a happy wife, if you want to have happy kids, and if you want to have a great work environment, then you need to be shaped by the Word of God. The Scriptures need to be number one in your life. And I'm going to try to, I really want to challenge everybody here today to try to read through the Psalms. If you can't read five Psalms a day, then try to read at least one a day. But try to get through, uh, try to get through the Psalms this summer. Would you do that? Now, we're going to pray in just a moment, but I want to reread re something for you. How can I know all the sins lurking in my heart? How can I know them? Well, you know the answer to that. The only way you can know the sins lurking in your heart is by taking this book, which is a searchlight. It's the brightest spotlight you will ever own and shine it on your own heart and you will see what needs to go. You say, why does that matter? Because I'm gonna tell you right now that the sin in your life is holding you back. The sin in your life is, is messing with your family, it's messing with your mind, it's messing with your job, it's messing with your marriage. 
You need the word of God to cleanse you. And that's exactly what David says here. Cleanse me from these hidden faults. Keep your servant from deliberate sins. Don't let them control me. Then I will be free of guilt and innocent of great sin. How can this happen? By feeding on the word of God. David, God says that man does not live by bread alone, but by what? By every word that comes from the mouth of God. Let's pray. Father, may the words of my mouth, the words of our mouths, and the meditations of my heart, of our hearts, be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. God, we thank you today for David and his faithfulness and for teaching us the power and the importance of feeding on the word of God. We do not live by bread alone. We live, God, according to your word. Your word is what gives us life, what gives us success, what helps us to prosper in every area of our life. So God, give us the grace and the strength, we pray, to live according to your word. And all God's people said, tell the person.